Take that! This is Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is a rebroadcast of an original episode first recorded with my father, Jeff Clark. Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. And I'm joined, as usual, with my father, Jeff. And first of all, Dad, g'day, how are you? G'day, Theo. Hello, listeners. And we have to apologise for our recent efforts with lack of podcasting. So our last podcast was late, this one's even later. Um, But there are various reasons. One of the main reasons is I'm super busy at work at the moment, so I just haven't been able to put the time and effort. The second reason is we're coming down to the... um, at the end of our series, uh, towards the, some of the other fallacies um, near, that we haven't done yet. And the reason why I haven't done those fallacies yet is because they're probably the harder ones to do that are harder to find examples of. So I've been looking around for more examples a bit more difficultly. And the main reason is that Jeff has just gotten back from a jaunt to the centre of Australia, where you were 10 days away. Yes, I was forced to remain away for 10 days by your mother. Yeah, we'll blame her. But I believe you had a good time, so to give credit to yeah, It was due. acceptable. Yeah, yeah, okay, good. Um, so, yeah, so sorry to our listeners, but we'll be back again. You know, we'll try and keep it regularly. At least every two weeks we'll put out a podcast. As long as you subscribe to iTunes, it's no big deal. Okay, anyway, in this podcast, we are looking at the fallacy begging the question. So why don't we get into it? It starts. Okay, begging the question, the other terms that can be used for that are circular argument, assuming the premise, assuming the conclusion. And we describe begging the question as follows. The advocate uses the conclusion, or rather the point he or she is attempting to make, as the premise for his or her argument. The circularity of the claim is usually disguised as the premise and the conclusion are stated in different ways. One is a paraphrase of the other. When advocates beg the question, they fail to seek external support for their claims. The point under discussion is assumed, rather than demonstrated to be true. Examples. Dotty Pimple... (laughs) I always forget our names, it's so stupid. Okay. Dotty Pimplebaum is president of the major player financial syndicate. She's giving a keynote address to the Society for Currency Renumeration and Excessive Wealth Underwriting, acronym Screw You, at their semi-biannual conference. Her address is entitled Free Trade, Why It's Good for Everyone. She closes her speech with the following summary of her position. People and organisations opposed to free trade clearly don't understand its logic. To me, it's self-evident that free trade is good for everyone. The progress being made by politicians and economists towards the unrestricted flow of goods between countries will result in great benefits to this country and to the whole world. Number two. Russell Farside is explaining gender issues to his friend Mitch Grinspoon. Men need to get in touch with their feminine side. Why? asked Mitch. I'm perfectly happy being masculine. Shouldn't men and women just behave how they feel? I don't think this is a healthy way of living, responds Russell. It's good for men to gain a better balance of their masculine and feminine selves. 
and the comment on those examples, the fallacy of begging the question assumes as evidence for the argument the claim or point that is in question. Dottie's argument, when dissected, is a clear example of begging the question. She has assumed, without any external evidence, that her claim, free trade is good, is correct. She attempts to justify this claim by restating this in a different form. First, she says, the unrestricted flow of goods between countries. This is a long-winded reiteration of free trade. Free trade is the unrestricted flow of goods between countries. She then follows up with the claim that this will result in great benefits to this country and to the whole world. This is merely a paraphrase of her original claim that free trade is good for everyone. In the second example, the same kind of specious reasoning is used. Stripped of its rhetoric, Russell believes that men need to get in touch with their feminine side because it is good for them. He gives no actual evidence for this claim. He merely asserts an opinion. Begging the question is an easily identified fallacy once an argument has been dissected. The conclusion and the premise are identical in all but their expression. Reasonably adroit proponents are able to disguise this reiteration well, but this deception is readily exposed for dissection when the dedicated debunker points out that the advocate is simply restating the premise as the conclusion. It should be noted that the expression begging the question is routinely misused by journalists, particularly those working in the electronic media. When a journalist or interviewer or commentator says, for example, that the government is begging the question, they often intend to mean something like the government is avoiding the question. This corrupted usage should be resisted. Unless the original meaning of useful words and phrases is preserved, we lose precision in language. Lack of precision in language is often symptomatic of a parallel lack of precision in thinking. When the phrase begging the question is used incorrectly in our presence, it's worthwhile pointing this out. At the same time, it might be useful to point out that careless word usage often signifies careless reasoning. Okay, so that was begging the question from Humbug. Now, I think that's a, a pretty good, quick little point to start up on. Is I've actually, I don't know, obviously selection bias and all this kind of thing, but I just really seem to have noticed in the last year or two, I've probably maybe not just been paying attention to it more, but I've heard a lot of journalists now starting to say that raises the question. I keep waiting for them to say begging the question, but I've heard a lot using that. So, I don't know, it's been since we published our book, I've noticed that, you know, journalists are starting to use it right. Maybe we've had that effect on them. Uh, I've also been um, uh, stalking journalists who have used uh, the, the phrase begging, begging the question. I have um, let their tyres down and left notes on their cars saying if they use begging the question when they mean avoiding the question, that a certain harm will come to them. Yep. And I think this has also had an effect. That could be it. Um, you say, it begs the question as to why I'm doing that. If you say that, I'm going to stab you. Exactly. Yeah, and I, and I think um, I have made an example of a few journalists um, 
and it's well known among the fraternity that uh, these people have uh, come down with mystifying diseases um, and have had to retire. Uh, so all of a sudden punctures start appearing in their back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, there's so we've got about three different examples I want to look at. Um, and the first one, I don't have an audio clip for, but it was just when I was reading uh, the book Sham by Steve Salerno, and Sham stands for the Self-Help and Actualization Movement, and I highly recommend this book. And I did blog about this one too, so you can go and look on the website. But basically the entire self-help and actualization movement is a question-begging movement because they don't ever base their claims on research. They always base it just simply on, you know, feel good. You can empower yourself. Why is that? Because if you're powerful, you feel good, you know. So it's that kind of circularity. And he, he gives a really good example of begging the question, which he explains is begging the question too. And it's from, of course, the king of self-help, Dr. Phil. And I'll just read it out because it's just a, a great example. And you go, and if you weren't aware of this, it... it Intuitively, it, it makes sense, but it doesn't actually count on any external thing to justify it. And this is Dr. Phil from one of his books. He says, I started this process by getting you to look at your past life because I believe that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. That being true, the link in a chain of your history predicts your future. That is basically what he said is, I, if we look at the past, we can predict your future. If that's true, if we look at the past, we can predict your future. So that's exactly what he said. He completely begged the question. He hasn't what he needs to do to make that argument. And if Dr. Phil cared about making an argument, but he doesn't, he cares about making money, um, not to impugn his motives. But actually, that's exactly what I was doing. Um, but basically, he has would need to find some kind of external movement. So, you know, find some psychology studies, whatever, that, that show that that is being studied properly. Can I say too, Theo, that um, after I saw one of the scary movies, um, the the one where a couple of people are chained oh, scary movie in, four. in yeah. a basement, uh, Dr. Phil is one of the people chained in the basement, yeah. and under duress he admits to the other person, who I think is a basketballer of some kind, uh, that he is only in fact an electrician. He's not a real doctor. Yeah, so I think we can be fairly dismissive. Yeah, scary movie four, and they're doing the movie Saw, which I've never actually seen all. I've seen a bit of it, and I thought it was pretty stupid. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but I mean, well, I mean, in re honestly, Dr. Phil, basically, he admitted, this is in the sham book, he, he was a failed marriage counsellor, and he quit that, and then he started up his jury selecting um, thing where he, you know, select jurors and whatever, and then Oprah had her beef thing she was getting sued for. Dr. Phil picked the jury... Oprah got off, Oprah made Dr. Phil, you know. And, of course, in big recent news, Oprah has now given basically Jenny McCarthy, the anti-autism bimbo, her own basic talk show. Good on you, Oprah. Thanks for that. Um, the next example I want to look at is the classic one of begging the question, which is, um, and, I, and, I, and I'm not saying this to, I know a lot of my, our listeners are like sceptics and atheists and stuff like that, but I'm not saying this to bag out religion it's just a, a good example of begging the question and it's how do you know the bible is true and this guy is a a priest or whatever some american dude and his name is john MacArthur. and all i did on youtube is i typed the bible is true and almost straight away i found a, an example of begging the question so let's have a listen to that now
she writes, in a world where everything is true and acceptable, how do you prove that the Bible is really true and that other forms of Bibles are not? Well, that's, of course, the most foundational question of all, because everything rises and falls on whether the Scripture is the Word of God. So there are lots of lines of evidence which you would use to prove the veracity of Scripture. I would say one of them would be the person of Jesus Christ. The, The presentation of Christ in the Bible is beyond human invention. You remember that they said of Jesus, no man ever spoke like this man spoke. Mm-hmm. His words are just beyond all human philosophy. How do you explain Christ? So no one would have made him up. No, it couldn't have made him up. How do you explain his resurrection with 500 eyewitnesses mm-hmm. who didn't expect him to rise from the dead? How do you expect apostles who thought he was dead and were running to hide all of a sudden becoming world-changing zealot evangelists. The only explanation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The birth of the church comes out of that. So how do you... Okay, so that's a a classic example there. The Bible is true because it says so in the Bible, basically, with his argument. And then, of course, he comes up with some other uh, highly amusing claims that I I, I can't, you know, how do you explain them being so zealous in their things? Like, well, have you seen the Tom Cruise Scientology video? He looks pretty zealous as well, so therefore Scientology must be true. Uh, Also, Star Trek, uh, because, man, I couldn't make that up. Yeah. uh, and the Klingons and the Klingon language and so on. So, I mean, one of the um, one of the problems with this line of argument is that the person often reveals their ignorance. I'm, I'm not speaking for or against Christianity and doctrines of Christianity, but you could, for example, explain um, the zeal of apostles who had known Jesus and their willingness to die as martyrs and so on by a, a psychological function called cognitive dissonance. So if, if uh, someone had followed uh, somebody in the, engaged in it and uh, as a result of following this leader um, had suffered greatly and the leader disappeared, um, it may well be the, the case that um, that person becomes even more dedicated when the leader goes because their dedication is kind of psychological proof to themselves yeah. that it was all real. And it was, so I, I'm not saying that is the explanation, but all I'm saying is that the, the zealot that we've just heard, um, doesn't admit to or recognize the possibility mm. of other explanations. Um, and so again, he's forced back on that basic, the premise is true. The premise is the conclusion. I will keep reiterating this, and I hope enough people will believe me and not see the connection. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's the exact thing with the begging the question there, is when he says, the life of Jesus, blah, 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 blah. But, well, how do we know about the life of Jesus? Because it's written down in the Bible. So you need to get some other... And the Bible is the word of God, and how do we know that? Because it says so in the Bible. And it's like, well, no, you need to get some separate evidence besides what's written in the Bible. And then, of course, I mean, the claims that... Uh, but just go back to the cognitive dissonance thing, and, and, and the, a good example of that recently is that tr- the trial of the homeopaths uh, for manslaughter that's going on in Australia at the moment because they let their nine-month-old daughter die, or son, I think it was daughter, die, of um, eczema because 
they refused to take her to a conventional doctor and she eventually died. Uh, now, to have a child be to that point, I cannot comprehend what is going on in your brain. So they must be so far down that ideology of avoiding conventional medicine. And to be fair, I, I can't imagine most homeopaths would be like that. These people have a special kind of disorder as well, where they're so far against um, conventional medicine. But I can't even... So that... So to rationalise in their head that their treatment isn't working, they must have, I, I, I can't even comprehend it, I'm, it's beyond words, you know. Um, but specifically, going back to his thing again, my favourite bit about that is not really even the begging the question bit, it's, the, it's beyond human imagination. And as you said, well, that guy's obviously never read any fiction, and if, he, and if we follow his argument to its logical conclusion, the more fantastic someone's claim is, the more true it is. So, for example, I reckon the claims made by these guys are even more fantastical, so therefore this must actually be the one true religion. Stan, do you want to hear the great secret doctrine of life behind Scientology? Sure. All right, go ahead and tell him. Usually to hear the secret doctrine, you have to be in the church for several years, Stan. Are you ready to hear the truth? I, I guess. You see, Stan, there is a reason for people feeling sad and depressed. An alien reason. It all began 75 million years ago. Back then, there was a galactic federation of planets, which was ruled over by the evil Lord Zenu. Zenu thought his galaxy was overpopulated, and so he rounded up countless aliens from all different planets, and then had those aliens frozen. Frozen alien bodies were loaded onto Xenu's galactic cruisers, which looked like DC-8s, except with rocket engines. The cruisers then took the frozen alien bodies to our planet, Earth, and dumped them into the volcanoes of Hawaii. The aliens were no longer frozen. They were dead. The souls of those aliens, however, lived on and all floated up towards the sky. But the evil Lord Xenu had prepared for this. Xenu didn't want their souls to return, and so he built giant soul catchers in the sky. The souls were taken to a huge soul brainwashing facility, which Xenu had also built on Earth. There the souls were forced to watch days of brainwashing material, which tricked them into believing a false reality. Xenu then released the alien souls, which roamed the Earth aimlessly in a fog of confusion. At the dawn of man, the souls finally found bodies which they could grab onto. They attached themselves to all mankind, which still to this day causes all our fears, our confusions, and our problems. L. Ron Hubbard did an amazing thing telling the world this incredible truth. Now all we're asking you to do is pick up where he left off. But I don't know any of this stuff. Neither did L. Ron when he started. He said he just closed his eyes and wrote down whatever came to mind. You can do the same. Just let it flow. Uh, I'd just like to make one thing clear, and that is that I personally know Christians who are devout and are believers in the resurrection, who I respect and who are very, very nice people. So this is not a rave against Christianity. This particular point we're making here is about spurious arguments in support of biblical text. Yeah. Um, so the Christians I know 
have various uh, levels of belief in the infallibility of the Bible, uh, but they usually express that in terms of a belief or a faith. And that's fine. That's, mm. that's, that's their position. And it becomes spurious when a person says the Bible is true because the Bible is true yeah. because the Bible is true because the Bible is true. Yeah. I, and I, yeah, I couldn't agree anymore. And, um, if anything I'll add to that is that I, the, the, the most respectful beliefs I can have for in a way that sense is the ones who don't actually even necessarily feel a need to try and prove their belief. And I'm not saying it's necessarily a good position to take either, but I'm just saying that, you know, to try and make an argument for it based on that kind of thing is just a waste of time. Um, and so a lot of it is just your own personal intuitions and whatever you have. And, you know, that's fine. That's, that's a, your own personal belief system. And whereas if it's, you're trying to make an argument for it and you're trying to convince me, well, you, you can't really use your personal experience to convince me. It might be more persuasive than using the Bible, but because that's just a book written by people. Um, but, you know, the point is that, in this particular case, all we're interested in is the lack of rigorous argument around it. And it, it, coming out of America, some of those those, belief, those arguments people put forward, I can't believe, you know, the argument from banana being the classic one. And there's another one. I don't know if, you, don't know if you've seen this one, Dad. The argument for the peanut butter jar. And the guy's like, I have to... <laughs> the guy's basically, if life had started... By natural causes, we'd, after we'd open, say, a million peanut butter jars, there'd be some new form of life in them. And I'm serious, like, that's his argument. Actually, there's a peanut butter jar right at the back of our fridge. <laughs> there's it, some new life been, in it. Yeah. It's been there for nearly 40 years. <laughs> yeah. And, man, I'm just not going to open the top of that one. <laughs> but, that, but the point, the funny one, that one, I'm like, no, dude, if it was special creation, we'd expect to see animals in that pop up every now and again out of nowhere. All right, anyway. Now, this, I think, is the ultimate uh, version of being a question, and it comes from the classic book uh, by Joseph Keller. That's right, isn't it? Catch-22? Heller, Heller. 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 Joseph Heller. That's it. Catch-22. And here is a little bit uh, from the movie uh, version of the book, Catch-22. You can't get more of a question being an evil argument than Catch-22. Basically, the catch is, and it comes up in lots of different circumstances, but the main one is, 
if you request to not fly these bomb runs. So it's set in um, World War II um, over Italy or somewhere, I think, and um, he's in a US bomb bomber, and, you know, the life expectancy is pretty small, and he's trying to get out of flying any more missions because he's getting out of his tour, and he says, well, I want to get out of it uh, because, you know, you, I, so he says... I want to request to get out of this. And he says, well, the only way you can get out of it is if you're unfit for duty. And the only way you can be unfit for duty besides being injured is being, you know, crazy. But if you're asking to get out of it, that shows you're sane. And only the crazy people want to fly. But the crazy people, because they want to fly, never ask to get out. And by def- by definition, if you ask, you're sane. So you can't get out. So it's catch-22. What, what amazes me is how um, a good idea... His time has come, like catch twenty two. Um, that 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 catchphrase has entered the language yep. as kind of everybody knows generally what it means, uh, and yet it, it's a nonsensical one. I mean, catch twenty two. Um, it doesn't actually describe um, what uh, Joseph Heller is talking about there, but it's just a. It's just a label yeah. that has become part of our culture, and most people understand what it means. And uh, it's, again, a, a circular argument. The, the other thing about begging the question that might help some people, if, if you're confused about the meaning of begging the question, just go to the alternate phrase, circular argument, mm. because that that's more descriptive. Uh, the, the term begging, begging the question comes uh, from a, a more philosophical kind of treatment of those issues by the ancients. And uh, circular argument is something that people understand from the nature of the, the actual words used. So uh, just remember, if you're, if you're unsure about begging the question, just think circular argument. Yeah, yeah. And if I, I just while you're talking now, I quickly looked it up on Wikipedia, and that's exactly the way they put it. They put it as a, a catch-22 as a military rule, the self-contradictory circular logic that prevents you avoiding combat missions. And so that's, that's and I think he actually, the name of the book, I hope you'll find it here, but he, I think he originally was going to call it like catch-10 or catch-9 or something like that, and for some strange reason he decided on catch-22, which you know, in hindsight, it just seems to work well, and who knows what you'd think of the other ones. But anyway, yeah, so that's a really good example of a, of a circular reasoning. Um, in this case, it's circular reasoning that really stuffs you over. Now, there are different examples we've got of uh, begging the question, and the only thing I'll, I'll say is begging the question is also one that's pretty easy to, to not get right to because you think, like, a lot of the time people aren't actually making a claim where they're putting forward evidence and they're just saying something, and people go, oh, that's begging the question because you're not giving it evidence, but if they're not making a claim, then it's not begging the question. So it has to be making some kind of claim as well. That, um, that's very important, see, and I, I can think of... If, you, if a person is merely reiterating a claim in different words but not yes. seeking to prove the original claim but kind of expanding on it, uh, giving further explanation, giving illustrations... They may not be engaged in a false form of argument if they're just trying to flesh it out um, by using other terms and so on. So just be aware, it's got to be a circular argument. Yeah. It's got to be one where the premise uh, and the conclusion are essentially the same and there's no external logic brought to bear uh, to support the premise. Yeah, and that's... Um, there was a specific example... I've got There was a couple of different examples I've found of that... Um, and that's one of the ones that came with the whole red flag faux pas thing where people think they've found a fallacy and they haven't. Um, a couple of different uh, 
one of the different examples, I found this guy was trying to um, have a go at Richard Dawkins for his poor logic, and I blogged about it on the thing, and um, and he basically said Dawkins had, had uh, begged the question when actually he hadn't, and it was exactly what he said. He just reiterated the same point using different words to explain it better. So if he'd said, if he said the word because in there, so... So the example I said was if Dawkins had said this will happen because and then re-said the same thing, that would be begging the question. So look for that connector like because or the, the reason for this, you know, any of those connectors that makes it connecting a, a premise to a conclusion. But if they're just saying the same thing over and over again, you might say, okay, I get your point, shut up, move on. But they're not begging the question unless they're trying to make that thing the claim based on the same kind of evidence. Okay, just before we go, uh, we had some feedback um, from the last podcast. Um, a listener wrote in, John Lockington, and he emailed us and he said, uh, Hi guys, love the show. I was listening to your last podcast on Appeal to Authority, and I really like the coinage of Appeal to Celebrity, and I will promote it and use it as much as possible. And I, I agree, John, and I think all our listeners should promote it too. Uh, I think you're trying a little too hard. You think you're being a little too hard on actors like, say, Tim Robbins and Susan Sarandon, who are trying to use their influence for what I would argue is a moral good. The disparaging way Matt Stone and Trey Bar- Parker, and for if you don't know who they are, they're the South Park creators, discuss acting is a little over the top too. Acting is something that does actually take great skill. It brings the writing to life. Um, well... I mean, we can comment on that, but I think probably the best person to comment on that, and I mean, and, you know, I kind of can argue about you with, you know, actors using their power for good and evil, whatever, but as far as acting, having great skill, I think we'll let an award-winning actor, Sir Ian McKellen, have the last word on that one. What I do is I pretend to be the person I'm portraying in the film or play. Yeah. You're confused. No, it's perfectly simple. Case in point, Lord of the Rings. Peter Jackson comes from New Zealand and says to me, Sir Ian, I want you to be Gandalf the wizard. And I say to him, you are aware that I am not really a wizard. And he said, yes, I am aware of that. What I want you to do is to use your acting skills to portray the wizard for the duration of the film. So I said, okay. And then I said to myself, hmm, how would I do that? And this is what I did. I imagined what it would be like to be a wizard. And then I pretended and acted in that way on the day. And how did I know what to say? The words were written down for me in a script. How did I know where to stand? People told me. If we were to draw a graph of my process, of my method, something like this. Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian, action. Wizard, you shall not pass! Cut! Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian. Okay. You see? Yeah. So, now you would be pretending to be John in this play and how would you know what to say well the words would be in the script yeah. and you would learn the words you would not have the script on the night and that goes for everybody there will be no scripts on the night you learn the words
Yeah. No, I speak think... them as if you were saying them for the first time. I didn't think we'd have the, the script. No, you won't. No, I... Because if you did have the script, it would break the illusion, and the whole thing is illusion. Do you see? You are not really John. No, I know. You are pretending, and that is acting. The best thing about that is we were watching, we're like, gee, Sarah McKellen's a brilliant actor. <laughs> it's, it's one of the best pieces of acting I've ever seen. And I, I love people that can take the piss yep. and can take the piss directed at themselves. I, I think the world is a wonderful place when there are a lot of people in the world who can do that. I think uh, the more people that can kind of uh, look critically and cynically yep. at their own profession, uh, the better off we are. Well, and... If I was, to, you know, when you talk to sceptics and rationalists and whatever, and they're always about what would make the world better for everyone to think critically, no, no, my number one thing is if nobody took themselves seriously, would make the world a better place. I take my job seriously, but not myself. There's and, a clear and, and ideas. You, you said something the other day, which I, I fully endorse. I put it a different way. You said you were a consequentialist when you looked at issues like uh, human rights and those sort of things. Um, I saw once a phrase that some people care about ideas and their consequences, other people care about ideas and the way they make them feel. And I immediately thought, that is exactly me, the first of those two. I care about ideas and their consequences, and second, very much a secondary consideration is how ideas make me feel. So if you're into critical thinking, that's what you're really on about. You're, you're on about ideas and their consequences. I cannot remember who said that, but I remember hearing that, that thing too, and I think it's a, a brilliant quote. And just finally, going uh, for myself, going back to the comment by um, the, the uh, listener in the email, and appeals to the celebrity and so on, uh, th- there is something fundamentally wrong with me. I, I am different to a lot of other people in that I honestly have no interest, zero interest, in celebrities. If I were in a public space and walking along and there was a celebrity somewhere there and, for example, I could walk up to them and they were somebody that I respected or something like that, I, I just wouldn't bother. I'd just walk straight past them. And I, I cannot understand the gushing um, treatment of celebrities. I, I, they're just human beings, uh, just the same as anyone else. And uh, to elevate them in any way, I think it's just really strange behaviour. I just don't understand it. Yeah, I've got to say there are some... I don't understand a lot of those things myself, but there are some exceptions. There are some people I'd want to... I'd shake their hand off, you know, but... Hello, Richard Saunders from Sydney, Australia, hoping you'll join us for The Skeptic Zone, the podcast for science and reason with guests like Brian Dunning, Derek and Swoopy, Dr. Pamela Gay, Mark Mayer, James Randi, Ben Radford, Dr. Steve Novella, Dr. Carl Krasilniski, Dr. Eugenie Scott, Dr. Paul Willis, Dr. Phil Plate, and many more, you're guaranteed a good listen. The Skeptic Zone at www.skepticzone.tv That was our podcast on begging the question, and... I promise to come back with another podcast at some time in the future within the next 
two, three. I reckon we'll be pretty good in the next couple of weeks. We'll do a couple more. Yeah, I, I think so. And the other thing, just to remember about this podcast, what we're saying about begging the question is absolutely correct and true because what we're saying about begging the question is correct and true. Well, probably not correct and true. It's more as right and accurate. That's true. Yeah. And we know that because what I'd said previously on other stuff was also right and accurate. When you look back through what mm. we said, you can't find fault in it. No. And therefore, you should have faith in what we said. I think we said enough. Yeah. If we go on even more, people will become convinced that there's some subterfuge involved. <laughs> and we're not really on top of this. No. And, and, the question. and, and our listeners know how accurate we always are we have been in the past because we've never had subterfuge or just you know spoken a lot of crap not once well we have but it's never been detected no that's true as far as we know i can't even be sure when you're speaking horseshit <laughs> well i think i'll leave it there <laughs> So that was a rebroadcast episode of Hunting Humbug 101. For more information about the show and the book, Humbug the Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Deceptive Arguments, head to www.skepticsfieldguide.net. <laughs>